91.3 WLRN presents Topical Currents. Long before Henry Flagler and long before it was even named Miami, the few settlers at the mouth of the Miami River pretty much ignored signs of earlier settlements in the area. Those remnants of native people began thousands of years ago. Good afternoon, Joseph Cooper and Bonnie Berman. Some of the new settlers came around the time of the Civil War. Some were carpetbaggers and looked to invest in what they deemed swampland. To look at today's towers of concrete, steel, and glass, and the hordes of residents, it's hard to imagine the ancients. We'll visit with FSU professor Andrew Frank this hour and go back 4,000 years, then swing to the start of the 20th century. Andrew Frank is author of the book, Before the Pioneers. Back soon, first the news. Seven minutes past one o'clock. It is today's Topical Currents. Joseph Cooper and Bonnie Berman on this Wednesday afternoon. Well, this hour we explore more South Florida history. We really like to do that. We'll be on with Florida State University history professor Andrew K. Frank. He's written an intriguing book titled Before the Pioneers, Indians, Settlers, Slaves, and the Founding of Miami. Who were the native peoples who inhabited the Miami River mouth thousands of years before the earliest whites recognized its beauty and function? Who were the people who preceded the Brickles and Tuttles on the shore of Biscayne Bay? Professor Andrew Frank joins us now from public radio station WFSU in Tallahassee. Welcome, (laughs) Professor. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. It's our pleasure to have you. It is amazing (laughs) because we think think, um, Miami is so modern and inconceivable looking at it that you know, we actually have a 4,000-year history. It really amazed me. So I guess most of us consider Julia Tuttle and Henry Flagler Florida's pioneers. That's the name of your book, right? That is correct, right? So we have a an origin story, like many people, of where Miami as a city comes from. And Julia Tuttle and Henry Flagler are certainly like mother and father, right? They are, um, for many, that's where things began. And in many ways, the modern world does stem from that. But everything has a history, and Julia Tuttle and Henry Flagler made their way because of the people that were before them, and there were many, and generations of them. You're at FSU, but you have uh, Flor- South Florida ties also. I do have South Florida ties. So I, I grew up in Broward County. I went to, let's see, I went to like a, a Seminole Middle School of all places, which had a Kiva, which is a southwestern motif, right? So I grew up in South Florida, surrounded by Tequesta Mounds and Seminole Indians, blissfully unaware that they've been there for a really long time, right? So it's a, it's a nice connection. And I, I married into a Miami family that's been there almost since what are now considered the pioneers. Yeah, you said your wife's grandfather had a lot of stories about the river and um, the Royal Palm Hotel, and we'll hear about that, right? Wonderful, absolutely. I'd love to tell those stories. Um, why do you think it's important for us to know Miami's ancient history? Do you think it can help us better understand our present? I think there's a lot of reasons we should be aware that there were people before us. So um, I'm a scholar of of Native Americans in general and Florida in general, but historians as as a group have been struggling with this idea of where we come from as as communities, as people, and we often forget um, 
that who we privilege tells us often who we're not privileging. So like if history is about remembering things, it's also about forgetting things. And so if we can remember that, let's see, in Miami's case, long before like Flagler comes from the north and he brings the railroad south, most of Miami's history has looked east and south from Miami towards the towards the Bahamas, towards the Caribbean in general, towards Havana, that we've really been, for the vast majority of our history, we've looked to the water, not towards land. And I think that's one of the stories that I tried to tell through this book, um, that the, the people who come to Miami um, up until Flagler are really concerned much more with what's happening, not in what we consider to be the United States, but the Atlantic world as a whole. I also thought it was pretty interesting that you said that the early occupants continually imagined that they were the first ones to occupy it. Yeah, maybe that's human nature. Uh, maybe it is. <laughs> it, or, or it, I mean, I don't know. When you think of other places that we think of as older, don't they usually acknowledge that there were people there before, you know, the settlers that actually settled it and brought it into modern times? I think it depends on where we're talking about. So... Um, I live in Tallahassee, and we I was just looking at a map of it not too long ago, and it says established 1821. Now, of course, Tallahassee means old fields, and it was creek and lands before that and Appalachian lands before that. And those tend to be road names in Tallahassee, but people are, don't live with a sense that that history exists. Um, and in most places where we think that history exists, we don't think of it as being connected to the present. So we work with this idea that there's an ancient world, and it's interesting. But then there's this intellectual gap that separates that past from our present. And so we tend to think of, in Miami's case, we think of, let's see, the fill along the coast as being remarkably modern and the steel and the concrete as that's really what Miami is or the Art Deco, that that's historic. And it's historic because we can either revive it or we can still see it. Um, but we're not really aware of the implications of the people that were there generations before that. So we, we know perhaps, even even if you read our book, um, and you become aware that there are Tequesta, and there are lots of historically-minded people in South Florida that know that there are these mounds and there are these middens and the Calusa on the west coast and the Tequesta on the east, right? So they're aware of that, but they don't tend to think of that as part of the same history as the Flagler to the present. And the same thing with the Spanish and the, the slave history. I think mm -hmm. that goes a, a long way of and trying the, to and, connect those. And the British as well. And the British as well. I think that's right. So we have this... I mean, I call it ancient, but it's really not that ancient, right? We only have to go back 120 years in Florida before we start imagining this as being empty um, or disconnected rather than being occupied and the world being shaped, right? So the next time one of our many residents drive over one of the bridges over the uh, <laughs> Miami River and look to the east towards the mouth of the river, what kind of, uh, archaeologically, what, what are the earliest inhabitants uh, that, that lived there? So there are a few ways of looking at it. So about 4,000 years ago, um, Tequesta, or the ancestors of the Tequesta, right? We, the Tequesta is a name that we give for these people, but it's really named after the individual that led the community at the same time that Ponce de Leon arrived in 1513. But these Tequesta Indians who are there, they start coming there around 4,000 years ago. But we think they came um, as temporary travelers down the basically out of the wetlands in the interior of Florida, out of what we would call the Everglades. And they would take the river down and they would use the mouth of the river as a resting point before they would venture outward. And that outward could be north or south along the coast um, or it could be into the Caribbean as, as a rule, as a, as a general guideline, I guess, where they would trade and they would get um, 
scarce items, whether they were spiritual or material, that they needed to kind of augment their lives and make it better. And so they were part of this world where this was kind of a gateway to the Caribbean for a very long time. And then about 2,000 years ago, they started establishing what we would call a permanent foothold. And that's when kind of the continuous occupation of what we now call Miami really began. And it doesn't stop, right? So the Tequesta are there um, for another almost 2,000 years, like 17, 1,800 years, where they are this really active, vibrant community that is living off of what the bounty of the water can provide them. And they're harvesting a kunti plant um, in order to make um, flour and, and breads and stews. And they're hunting in the interior. And that's the world there for a very long period of time before we get to later occupations by Europeans and others. What happened to the Tequestas? So the Tequesta story is very comparable to the story of native peoples throughout Florida. So they were um, a group of individuals of a community or sets of communities that were throughout the southeast coast of, of Florida. Their largest community was right on the north bank of the Miami River, but it extended a little bit to the south where the Miami Circle is now. And they were... Um, occupants until about the 1600s without too much interference from the outside. And when the Spanish arrived, the Spanish did some trading with them, and then they established a mission with them. Um, and they tried converting the Tequesta to become part of the Catholic faith. And that went um, rather short-lived. And after a short while, the Tequesta more or less um, violently asked them to leave. Um, the Spanish returned again with trade goods and shipwreckers came through. Mm. Um, and ultimately, slave raids came through. So British-sponsored, mostly Creek Indians from, say, Georgia, North Florida, and Alabama, they came raiding into South Florida, not just at the mouth of the river, um, but they took thousands of Indian slaves out of Florida and shipped them off to the Caribbean. And so that was really devastating for the Tequesta down, down in Miami. Um, and then they became a place for refuge. So Indians from across, say, Lake Okeechobee South, whose communities had been ravaged by these slave raids, they came to the mouth of the Miami River, and they created this maybe it's called a polyglot community, a multi-ethnic, multilingual um, community where they tried to kind of make the best of it and regroup. So they were sort of absorbed then uh, after being enslaved into other Caribbean cultures? And yeah, well, the, interbreeding I mean, and... tens of thousands of Southeastern Indians were shipped off to the Caribbean and became part of slave communities elsewhere. Those who came to the Tequesta area, who were the, kind of the survivors of these raids and who, who remained, um, they remained their own kind of separate community, and ultimately they would merge in with the group that later became known as Seminoles. Why was the north bank of the river so much more vital than the south bank of the river? You know, that's a great question, because I don't think necessarily there's anything geographically better about one over the other. Um, and maybe further archaeology will kind of change our understanding of what this world was. Um, but we think the south bank of the river was, it was occupied, it was connected with what was going on in the north. But for whatever reason, the archaeology that we found there, the Miami Circle, um, doesn't seem to have residence there. It has occupancy, which has led lots of archaeologists to think of it as being a more sacred space where people would go for ceremonial purposes. But we don't find as much evidence for, like, food, um, eating, dwellings, where on the north side we do. But the estuaries in the north and the south were pretty comparable to one another, hmm. um, right? You can, if you're looking to harvest shellfish out of the waters, it's they're pretty comparable to one another. So we don't really know. I mean, there's, there's so many questions we can't answer, um, at least not yet. Um, we can take all sorts of fun guesses, but um, 
Your guess it, is as good as mine. Was it maybe a more spiritual place for some reason, something they were tuned into that was more spiritual than the South Bank? You know, I can't really tell. Um, I wish I had the answer for you. This would be a great a great answer, and I wish I can um, spin one for you. Um, but we really don't know. I mean, so we don't we don't know that much about the Dacessa in terms of their spiritual world in general. Maybe um, we're just unable to understand or comprehend. <laughs> Maybe it's yes. one of it's those. a different plane. That's true. You know, when you travel into the past, let alone into a different culture, it is time travel. I mean, it is, it's a very hard thing to try to grasp how other people mm. view things, even in the present, let alone when you go back a couple thousand years. We're speaking with Andrew Frank. He's the Alan Morris Associate Professor of History at Florida State University and an award-winning author and editor. He's a specialist in the history of the Seminoles and other Indians of Florida, and his latest book is Before the Pioneers, Indians, Settlers, Slaves, and the Founding of Miami. And we'll be right back after this break. And we return. It's today's Topical Currents. Joseph Cooper, Bonnie Berman, and uh, history professor Andrew K. Frank. We're talking about his book, Before the Pioneers, Indian Settlers, Slaves, and the Founding of Miami. Andrew Frank, in the book, I, you, you mentioned that the, uh, the Native people also in the, uh, navigated the Everglades waterways, of course, but also that they, seemed, that they made some amendments to them. Were they building dams and things and, and making physical changes? Well, I think all people have made physical changes consciously to the world around them, right? Um, and in some cases, that's agriculture. But the Seminoles, and before them, the Tequesta, have long um, followed the same tracks. So if you're using a dugout canoe um, and you follow a track that is clear in the sawgrass and you follow the same track over and over, um, you're going to change the way in wow. which um, they almost become rivers in, in, within the grass, right? So if you cut the same path over and over and over on a consistent basis— um, it becomes a thoroughfare. Um, but before that, there were canals, um, right? Canals have a different meaning then in many ways than it does now. In the sense of canals, a man-made made waterway. But if you're building a canal through what we call wetlands before water management, before modern water management at least, um, the wetlands are wet part of the time and not wet other parts of the time. And so if you can clear that, in order to maintain kind of uh, a wet quality year round, right, that's a canal. It's a man-made alteration of the world around them. And so the Tequesta the, the are certainly doing that. And the Calusa on the West Coast built lots of canals in order to maintain um, a consistent ability to travel to the interior. Otherwise, the Miami River is only a handful of miles um, long. And so if you get to the end of the river um, and it's dry, you, you really can't get very far from there. And it's not it's not very convenient to take your dugout canoe and lift it up and put it over your head and walk in order to get to a, the next place where it's wet. And so they did their best to try to maintain what we would consider a, a waterway system or a highway system of water. And that tell, goes back a pretty long way. Tell our listeners also how the Miccosukee figure in here because they are very aware of the Miccosukee tribe here. Well, the Miccosukee fit the same way as Seminole. And right, so in many ways... Both from, from the creeks, correct? Yeah, yeah, they're both from the creeks, and they're both from the Tequesta in many ways, right? They they form, and they're indigenous to Florida in the sense of that they form as communities while they are here. And some of their ancestry extends back into the ancient world of Florida, and some of their ancestry extends back to the ancient world of North Florida and Georgia, where there are migrants who come down into the south. And so the Seminoles and Miccosukees from the outside world, from the Spanish and then later the, the British and then the Americans, um, they always called them 
one and the same. Sometimes they would distinguish a Miccosukee village from a Seminole village or a Muscogee Creek village. Um, but say in the first and the second and the third Seminole Wars, they were all Seminoles from the outside, even if the even if the communities themselves understood themselves to be different. So the Miccosukees are part of this world from the um, from the from the beginning, I guess, right? So their ancestors go back to the Dequesta, and then when the Miccosukees set up along the um, Tamiami Trail um, in the middle of the 19th century, they are traveling to the Miami River to harvest uh, one of their important crops, which is um, kunti. Um, and they use that in various ways, just the same way that um, Seminoles to the north in the interior did the same. Now, the Miami River figures so uh, prominently in this story. Tell us about it. The origin of the Miami River was in the in the in the what what is now, of course, uh, shopping centers, but uh, right. in the in the eastern Everglades. I believe there were also rapids around the area where Miami Springs are now. Uh, where the city of Miami Springs is, there were actually rapids in that river. Yeah, it's really hard to imagine, right? I've I've been to Miami many times, and I've um, spent a lot of times with people who spent their entire lives in Miami. And they don't even know the river's there, although they know there's a geographic space. But to imagine rapids in Miami is a hard thing for us to fathom, <laughs> uh, right? We have so altered not just the physical environment, but our sense of our place in the physical environment. It's hard to imagine. But the Miami River forms around 5,000 years ago, right? We tend to think of um, water and dirt as being here in memorial, but right, we had a, a mini ice age, and as the the, um, the currents warmed and Florida became smaller, the waters came up, Florida became smaller, that's when Florida went from being remarkably arid and dry to wetlands. And the Miami River forms out of the formation of the wetlands, which we now call Big Cypress and the Everglades, and this fresh water starts flowing into Biscayne Bay. The original global warming. Yeah, one of the original global yeah, warmings, yeah. at least. <laughs> this one had a much more of an effect on humankind rather than the other way around, I think. But that's that's a different story. <laughs> Do you think that uh, the preservation and protection efforts of the ancient tribes and the ancient relics are 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 strong enough? I mean, I think they've gotten better over time, especially with the Miami Circle events. But do you think they're still doing enough? You know, it's it's a hard act to balance. Do, as a historian, do I wish there was more? Absolutely. I always wish um, that private industry and um, government and universities would spend a lot more time thinking about what we preserve and how we preserve that history, both in terms of the, the physical stories that we tell and the intellectual stories that we that we tell. Um, but at the same time, it's... Um, Maybe I live in a little bit too much of a fantasy world that I, I think everything should be saved. Certainly not everything can be saved. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that what they did at the north bank of the Miami River will work. So um, this project began in many ways because I got a phone call from an attorney who represented the developer of the north side. And they were about oh. to go into mediation. And they wanted to know, what on earth is this place? And so I did a little bit of work and I told them what this place was. Um, and so now hopefully, I mean, they went to mediation and the result is History Miami is going to put a museum on the site, um, but it's going to be surrounded and, and underneath um, what we now consider to be development. Right. Um, and so it, I hope, I mean, this is the typical compromise. So I'm hoping that in many ways that the development will bring people to a site that otherwise they wouldn't know exists. And while they're there, hopefully they'll stop and they'll see what History Miami has to say. That, that uh, But I mean, it's a hard thing. I can't... Um, do I wish we had more saving and less spending of our past? Absolutely. Um, but I don't, 
are, are we getting better at it? Yes. That's not the best answer I know, but that's right. No, uh, it's it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a hard balance to have. Tell about the earliest white settlers on the bay, even pre-Civil War. So the earliest white settlers or the white occupants of the area, the first whites to come there were Spaniards. And so Ponce de Leon comes in 1513, um, and then Spanish missionaries come in the 1560s. So Mendez also? Mendez comes here, and right? So there's kind of the, the, the cast of characters that we normally associate with the early Spanish Florida, often with St. Augustine. Um, they are in Miami at the same moment that St. Augustine is being founded or even beforehand. Um, and then from there, it becomes a world where um, lots of boats would kind of leave Havana or elsewhere in the Caribbean, and they would hug the coast of Florida, and they would go through the Florida Straits, and they would um, run into some sort of sand barge, or they would just ground themselves. And these individuals would come ashore, or they'd be brought ashore by the Tequesta who were here, and often we'd had lots of, uh, say, Spanish um, officials and, and, and their Navy coming in trying to rescue them or to trade for their release. And that goes on for a pretty long period of time. Um, there's some pretty good records that the Tequesta would hide reefs in order to lure boats um, to think that they're going through a safe area um, in order to kind of get the, the bounty of whatever cargo mm-hmm. they had. Mm-hmm. And then they would ransom the Spaniards um, off in order to get more supplies. We're speaking with Andrew Frank about his book, Before the Pioneers, Indians, Settlers, Slaves, and the Founding of Miami on today's Topical Currents. If you have an interest in speaking with a professor and perhaps asking a question or weighing in some way, our number is 1-800-743-9576, 1-800-743-9576. Our email is radio at wlrn.org, radio at wlrn.org. We're going to take a short break. And we'll be right back. And as topical currents, we're doing some extreme reminiscing here, going back to... Uh, <laughs> I guess you could say that. ...in thousands of years in South Florida history, particularly uh, in the Miami River, both the north and the south banks of that very important River. Again, our number, if you'd like to join in, 1-800-743-9576. Also, short emails are uh, an option, radio at wlrn.org. You can tell us if this is a secret to you, if this is all new to you. That y- Did you know that Miami was 4,000 years old? Um, so, Andrew, Professor Frank, what mm-hmm. was the Bahamian influence in early Miami? Well, that's a great question. So there's a lot of ways of looking at it. So the Bahamian influence comes really early. So not as early as the Tequesta, but by the 1600s, there are Bahamian mariners, boaters, who are going back and forth um, from the Bahamas to all of Biscayne Bay. And the Miami River has this, uh, they had a kind of, it's the fresh water coming out of the Everglades, which is a valued prize, but there was also a natural spring that was there, the availability of lumber, and then the Bahamians, would, they planted lime trees along the, along the coast, right? So rather than track, uh, packing citrus with them, and they probably did some of that as well, they planted these trees along the coast, and they would harvest limes, and they would harvest shellfish and, and, and various foods and lumber. And so Miami became this not quite a permanent resting place, but it was a consistent resting place for more than a century for Bahamians. Um, and that continues from the moment that they come 
really in the 1600s, and it's this kind of recurring theme in this history, and ultimately Bohemian um, construction workers are those who help build the hotel that's on the site that Flagler builds at the end of the 19th century, the, the Royal Palm right. Hotel. So it's been all the way through. Um, again, that goes at this idea that, that, that Miami is really looking outward, or the outside world is looking inward rather than from, say, the continental United States, but the, but the waterways has really shaped um, with that, Miami that, With that beha- Bahamian uh, uh, interest uh, in South Florida, of course, that a lot of people here don't realize that Coconut Grove is actually older than, the, than Miami. And also, I, I can tell you the story. Many, many years ago, I happened to interview Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, and she talked oh, wow. about when she first came here that U- what is now US-1 between the Grove and the city of Miami mm-hmm. was a dirt road when she first wow. arrived here around uh, 1910 or, or so, something like that, but a little after that. I wanted to ask, though, about their treatment. How were they treated um, when they arrived? Were, was there any racial inequality at that point? So in the beginning, we have very little evidence of how they were of relationships between the Dequesta and the Bahamians. We know that the Bahamians are coming and they're going, um, but we don't have much evidence for when they dealt with each other what what actually happened. Mm. We know that at some point, um, the Bahamians who arrive, um, some point meaning closer to the 20th century, late 19th century, um, there's tremendous animosity um, in a way that they are. They are relegated to particular forms of labor. They are not um, uh, not allowed to stay. At the, right? Once we get to the Flagler stage, they're not allowed to stay at the um, the same homes as other folks, and they are they are segregated in many ways. But in between, there's this period in the 19th century, in the middle of the 19th century, around the time of the American Civil War, where it's just this amazing community that forms at the mouth of the river, that includes Northerners and Southerners, whites, blacks, Bahamians, and others from from a basically across the region, both on on land and by sea. And they set up shop, if you will, at the mouth of the river in order to avoid kind of the mess that's going on in the United States and elsewhere at the time. And so there are all these um, primarily men who are what we would now consider draft dodgers. They don't want to be in the part of the Confederate Army, and they're from a small town or an agricultural area elsewhere in Florida. And they are living in these homes at the, at the mouth of the river, um, and the descriptions of these people, they are from every walk of life with multiple languages. Languages from Africa are being spoken. Languages from Europe are being spoken. Um, and, of course, Spanish and, um, is kind of the lingua franca. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So there were so many cultures. So Miami's always been a very multicultural city, hasn't it? For a really long time it has yeah. been, yeah. As much as we think of that as being remarkably new, there are right. these moments when that's not so new. And before we take some phone calls, Professor, uh, touch on Fort Dallas, 1836, and the Seminole Wars and its influence, the Second War in, in particular. Sure. So for, in, in the 1820s and 1830s, a slave plantation gets formed at the mouth of the river. And when the Seminole War breaks out, the owner of the plantation, um, his property on the New River in Fort Lauderdale was, was raided. Um, and so he got scared, and he ordered that his overseer and his 60 slaves flee, and they leave behind a remarkably large and active plantation on the site and the US military takes it over and they rename it Fort Dallas and they use it as a base of operations for the second and then later the third Seminole War. And so the second Seminole War, which is from 1835 to 42, um, is largely this attempt to um, eradicate the Seminole presence, not just in Florida, but especially along the coast of Florida to contain them um, in lands in the interior, if not convince them to move to Indian country or Oklahoma. 
And Fort Dallas takes on this oversized role in a war that we normally associate with the northern part of the state, but there was a southern part of the war as well. And Fort Dallas was really kind of this this outpost, but this base of operations where an amazing number of prominent U.S. military officials came through. Um, they would later get their prominence mostly in the Civil War, but it's everyone from Abner Doubleday was there to Joseph Johnson, who was a Confederate general, um, Doubleday being of baseball fame. All these right. folks came through um, Fort Dallas as as part of the second and then later the third Seminole War. About Miami, I'm thinking last week we did that show on uh, what, the music show. What was the name of that book? Um, oh, on the soul music. On the soul music. Mm-hmm. In, I mean, it's just all this, all these things are kept secret, you know, about Miami and South Florida. It's really, really something. Yeah, I'm always curious why they kept kept secret, right? So sometimes that's my question. Yeah, truth is always better than fiction, and sometimes we hide the truth and we tell these tales that are kind of dull. Um, <laughs> well, I don't right? know that they're dull. There's a lot of the stuff about weird Florida that's not too dull. Well, that's true. That yeah. is fair. You know, Professor, you mentioned uh, the importance of Kunti, and it was so important in the local economy. There were Kunti mills. You can mm-hmm. still see Kunti in downtown Miami growing up in in uh, sidewalk cracks. Absolutely. I mean, it's wow. it's everywhere. They just planted it at Florida State a couple of years ago in this attempt to return kind of Tallahassee to its native state. They're looking mm. for native plants that don't require much upkeep. So Kunti's everywhere. Once it gets going, um, it's rough to get rid of. Dude. It's very rough to get rid of. Um, <laughs> and it's not which, invasive. <laughs> that is true. And, and that's large part why it becomes this, this staple crop, right? So you can, you can harvest it and it's, um, I mean, people consider it a famine food. It doesn't taste very good. Um, but what it, does it taste like? Really bland, a little bitter. I've only had it once. They made flour um, out of it. They uh-huh. made flour out of it, and you can knead it with, with water, and you can make like a dough, and if you throw it into like hot fat, it'll puff up like, like many flours. Maybe we'd give um, Bonnie a project to get some and make some bread. <laughs> yeah, Bonnie, it's all you. Sure. <laughs> Thanks. Gee, sounds like fun. <laughs> but people also use it as a thickener. So if you make a stew and you add that to a stew, it can pr- provide a little bit more hardiness to it. Yeah, oh, like cornstarch or something. Like yeah. a cornstarch or, or flour. I mean, it's... Mm. Um, and so the, the Tequesta for a very long time, where that's what they were um, living on. The Seminoles did the same. And it's actually what Julia Tuttle's father brought him to Miami or kept him in Miami for the time that he was alive is that um, he went into the Kunti business. Um, right? This was a really important part of early Miami's economy, early Miami meaning like the, the Flagler era economy before tourism. Right. So many people don't realize the Cleveland connection with Miami. Julia Tuttle was from Cleveland. Henry Flagler from Cleveland. Wasn't uh, Carl Fisher from? Not, in, no, that in was Indianapolis. Indianapolis. Indianapolis oh, okay. Yeah, but Cleveland had a big role in early uh, development of Miami. Let's uh, take some phone calls from listeners. We're talking with Professor Andrew Frank from Florida State University. We're talking about his book Before the Pioneers. First up, we have uh, Russell in Fort Lauderdale. Russell, hi. Go ahead. Hi, thank you for having me on again. I was on with the hurricanes and all, and I went to that uh, Florida Blues thing at Books and Books. And oh, you did? Books. How was it? With oh, incredible. incredible. I forgot incredible. about that. I no. forgot about it, too. Thank you for, for I was listening. My television blew up, so I've been listening to the radio. I'm, <laughs> I'm just listening to the professor. Here's a couple of points. I'm a geologist, chemist, hurricane expert, studying 62 years and all. But I've studied history, of course, and the reason why the north part of the uh, rivers in Miami and Fort Lauderdale, the new river, the north part is higher, broader, just slightly. Wait a minute, Russell, you're breaking up a little. You're fuzzing up on us. Yeah, I want the answer. Let me let me let me move. 
Uh, it's higher and drier, and the south part is uh, slightly lower and sandier. The current right off the ocean is generally southbound, too, and um, so you get deposits on the south side. In other words, the buildings in Miami are on the north side of the river, present-day buildings, and the smaller buildings were built up later, and, of course, they've altered the mouths of the rivers and all. Same thing in Fort Lauderdale, where the Point of the Americas and all that is on the north part, and the south part is the sandier natural beach and all. So that's probably what happened 2,000 years ago. The other point is that uh, US-1 is really what's called the Miami Ridge. It's higher and drier geologically, and then it swamps off into the right. So that all these cities along the way were oases, oases in the old days, so that Gania Beach is the oldest city in Broward County because it's highest and driest. It's about 15 feet above water. And uh, so Dania and Hollywood and all these places were oases back in the day. You can really tell. You between. can really tell that if you look down Aviation Avenue towards the right. bay, oh, yeah. that hill there. I think the, yes. the height of Aviation uh, Avenue right. is one of the high points there. That's in Coconut Grove, of course. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in Fort Lauderdale, Dania Beach, there's a Dania Cutoff Canal that they dug, and it's right where Dockers Bar is. And if you park there, you can look down, and it's the only place in Fort, in Broward County that the water is moving real fast. When the tide's going out, it rips through there. You could surf it practically. And it's like 18 feet down of coral rock that they dug this thing and all. Very interesting wow. stuff. So I always say follow the oak trees and the architecture. And the oak trees are on the highest, driest ground. And the architecture that they've built along the way were on the highest, driest part of town. Where the blues clubs and everything over town all the years ago, it was a higher and drier. Mm. And Miami actually has hills in it. In Fort Lauderdale, it's hard to see the hills. But we're in the swamp, basically, between West Palm Beach and Miami, which is higher and drier. Well, Russell, thanks yeah. so much. When's, oh, your, that was when, when's your book coming out? <laughs> Soon. I'm actually working with uh, <laughs> the Stephen Gyllenhaal, Maggie and Jake Gyllenhaal's father, who oh. is my classmate from Trinity. And I just got an email back from him, which I haven't read. And um, I'm watching that, the deuce, with Maggie Gyllenhaal and all. So this will be in the future. Okay. Well, Absolutely. thanks so much for... T- You're for, welcome. Thank okay. you for having me. Thank thanks. you. Bye-bye. Yeah, thank you, Russell. That was really great. Yeah. So the, the idea of it being the high ridge is, is really important. So the, the one of the owners of the Miami River was this guy, Richard Fitzpatrick. He was the successful slave owner, and he came up from the Keys after he leaves. He flees South Carolina. He makes a home in the Keys, and he makes his way up, and he purchases all the high, all the high ground that he can find, um, and he drives land that's much lower into the interior, and he starts trying to sell them off. And he uses his his home on the mouth as the example of what, what greatness you can create in the region, hoping to kind of convince people that the lower lands, which uh, get inundated with water, um, wouldn't, right? So he has the model plantation, if you will, and that if you follow my model, you can you can become kind of this, this great planter and, and remarkably wealthy, but he's selling them very different pieces of land, and he knows it. Um, he knows he has the high land. He knows he's on the bluff. Uh, Professor, there was a, a character in your book that uh, was very interesting named William Augustus Bowles. Yeah. Tell us. William Augustus Bowles. I think that was my favorite find in the book. So William Augustus Bowles was a young teenager um, living in Maryland when the American Revolution began. And so he lied about his age. He joined the British Army in order to fight the, the, re- the revolutionary cause, but from the other side, um, only to ha- basically be on the losing end. And so he takes flight, and he joins the Creek Indians, marries a Creek woman. Um, and then in Creek society, he finds himself on the wrong side of that as well. Um, and so he takes flight with a group of some runaway slaves and some um, disfranchised Indians, and they make their way into Florida, and they're trying to basically reverse the course of the American Revolution. 
And for me, what, what made this, we, we've known a lot of this about, about Bowles for a long time. In my first book, I spent a good deal of time talking about him. But for stretches of his history, he seemed to disappear. No one knows where he went. And for a good chunk of that time, apparently he was at the Miami River. So when I took the focus of looking at what was happening at the North Bank, all of a sudden I start finding references to Bowles' band creating structures at the mouth of the river. And so he uses the mouth of a river in the 1760s, excuse me, 1780s, as a place where he can hold himself up, um, resupply himself, and either travel to the Bahamas, where he was hoping to get supplies. He would travel to meet with British officials. Hopefully they would give him guns and other things that he needed to kind of wage his war. Huh. Or he would sail his way up the coast where he could attack various Indian posts that he was trying to overturn. Professor, so why don't you move back to South Florida? Oh, I would love to. I'm employed in Tallahassee. <laughs> okay. That's always We'll put in a word for you at one of the well, universities. I, uh, yeah, well, I worked at Florida Atlantic University for four years before coming up here. Um, but as a scholar of the Seminoles, working at Florida State is, a, well, is an interesting go. place. Sure. You just alluded to your first book. Is that Creeks and Southerners by Culturalism on the Early American Frontier? <laughs> yes, it is. Okay. All right. Well, that's another book. But we're discussing his another latest book. for another day. Book. Yes. Before the Pioneers, Indian Settler Slaves and the Founding of Miami. Stay with us. If you're on the phone, we'll get to you as soon as we take this short break. Stay with us. It's Topical Currents. Joseph Cooper, Bonnie Berman. And we continue on with Andrew Frank talking about his book, Before the Pioneers. Andrew Frank, tell us, uh, we've kind of been North Bank oriented. Tell us more about the Brickles and the South Bank. Well, the Brickles were kind of your typical um, Indian traders. So they come to the Miami area um, and they are looking to kind of establish themselves. They own the southern portion of um, the Miami River, the land on the bank. Um, and they become two of the most consistently profitable and beneficial traders for the Seminole tribe and Miccosukees. And they set up this trading post um, that is providing kind of dry goods for all folks in Miami, but in particular, they become the kind of the linchpin for the Seminoles to engage the the wider market. Um, and so this is where the Seminoles are getting um, ultimately Singer sewing machines. When you can see the the patchwork clothing that they wear um, for so long, that that's born of the of a sewing machine and and various dry goods, cloth, needles, threads, um, flour, corn, metal goods. Um, they kind of got the Seminoles um, less disconnected, um, if you will, from the interior and more engaged on the east coast of Florida. Let's take some more telephone calls. We're getting a little late in the program. Uh, Anne-Marie in Miami. Hi. Hi. I'm, yes, I'm sorry. I had a question for the um, professor. If he had any information regarding the Dana Indians. The which Indians? It's hard to hear you. She's talking about the Tainos. You know, yeah, I'm sorry. I can't pronounce it either. <laughs> the Tainos? Yes. Okay. I, I know it. Well, there's, yeah, there's a, there's a lot that we can tell you, right? So um, these are the Indians of, of, of parts of the Caribbean. Now, we, we don't know if they came to the North Bank, right? That's something that is not um, available, if you will, in the archaeological record. But we know that there's trade between the folks in Miami and the native people throughout the, at least the local Caribbean, that predates the arrival of Europeans. And so there are these trade routes that go from island to shore um, that are certainly co connecting the Taino um, going back uh, hundreds of years prior to the arrival of the Spanish. 
So in terms of like um, their cultural connection, so the Tequesta, right? One of the things I teach a lot of Florida history and Florida Native American history, the Tequesta appear in their material culture, same as the Calusa, much more like the Taino and the Caribbean folks than say the Appalachia or the Timucua in, in the north of Florida, right? So as I, I keep coming back to this idea that the that Miami and its peoples have always been looking towards the waterways. Um, the Tequesta and the ways in which they built their homes, the ways in which kind of they lived off of um, shellfish more so than agriculture, um, and lots of the the spiritual world in which at least the, the, the physical evidence they left behind really mirrors a lot of what the Taino has, um, what they left behind. So so in many ways, the Tequesta, they're not certainly not, not Taino, but they're much more akin um, in terms of their cultural world worldview. I don't know if that gets at, the, at your answer. I don't know, like, there's so many things we can talk about in terms yeah. of Taino, but that's um, okay. So that, well, we so have a lot. Of, we have a lot more calls. Yeah, go so ahead. Let's uh, move along to uh, Lee in Fort Lauderdale. Lee, you're up. Yes, I was wondering where they people changed the pronunciation from Miami to Miami. That was sort of interesting because the old native Miamans know it as Miami. But what I was interested in is they had a massive march from the Midwest, the Indians, that our government wanted to take over at one period of time their their land because they had discovered gold and different minerals. And they were marched over to Florida, and they lost many, many, many of their people. And this was the Arapahoes, the Cherokees, and the different ones. And they ended up integrating with the Indians that were here. So it's a massive contribution to all of these cultures to bring us as to where we are today. Professor, can you comment there? Yeah, well, we have a lot of different ideas that I think are getting conflicted here. So those, there was a massive attempt by the United States to remove Indians out of the east of the Mississippi and move them west. Um, and as part of that movement west, we often call it the Trail of Tears, with it's the Cherokees, the Choctaws, the Chickasaws, the Seminoles, and others. Um, and there's this massive attempt primarily in the 1830s, but before and after, to push the Indians out of both Florida and the rest of the east coast of the United States and move them west. That's really separate from kind of the the Arapaho story, for example. So there are Comanches and Arapaho that get brought in the 1880s to places like St. Augustine because it was a prison, right? And they were holed up there as they were awaiting uh, basically deportation somewhere else. Um, so the Seminoles, though, they come into Florida and join other Indians who are here. The Creeks come in and join the Seminoles who are here as part of the attempt to escape removal. Um, and so, yes, the Seminoles have lots of ethnic backgrounds to them, um, but I think we're we're mixing lots of things together right now. And so, I, I mean, the, the community that forms in Miami um, is not forced there by the United States um, on, on marches, right? These are folks who come to Miami um, out of their own choice, and sometimes they're choosing to escape problems elsewhere, but they're coming here um, in order to pursue a better option rather than against their will. Okay. Right. And as far as the Miami, Miami is just old-timey. It's similar to uh, people, some say, say, Cincinnati or Missouri. I think that's exactly right. I think sometimes you can go into different households in Miami today and, and get two different opinions. Mm-hmm. Or hurricane and uh, Nathan in Miami, please be brief. Hi. Sure thing. I just moved back to Miami from Florida State. And, I mean, I grew up here, and but it's only now with a new perspective that I'm sort of starting to feel the essence culture of Miami. So I was wondering what sort of influence those initial European settlers have had on the culture of Miami now. So now culture is a hard thing to get at. 
so i think one of the things that the ancient connections have always had is that one it established the location of where the center of miami would be and that has been the case for a long time um, the idea of miami being a meeting place of multiple cultures for a long time that that is the norm rather than the abnormal that goes back multiple generations and so we often think of kind of these moments in florida history as being jolting um, but in fact they are that this ebb and flow of, of newcomers goes back a very long way. And I think you can even see it in the foods that we eat, right? The, um, the emergence of citrus was, we often attribute it to Julia Tuttle and to Flagler, but it is those Bahamians that brought these right. limes much earlier um, and reshaped the environment in such a fashion that it leads to um, what we consider what South Florida food or Miami cuisine um, to, to look a particular way. There's nothing destined about um, what Miami would become, but rather this was the decisions of individuals over a long time. Professor, we're very time. short on yeah, time, I but I, I have one more uh, caller I want to introduce. Great. Uh, one of our colleagues here, uh, Paul, Dr. Paul George. Oh, wonderful. And uh, I think he wrote one of the intros to your, uh, a blurb on your book, even. He did. Hi, Paul. Hi, how you doing? Hi, Paul. Hi, Paul. Hi, Bonnie. How you doing? Uh, great talking with you. Andrew, just a, just a quick uh, note uh, how much I enjoyed reading that manuscript and, of course, the book itself. And uh, for me, there's nothing more important in Southeast Florida history and archaeology than the north bank of the river at the mouth, and you've obviously captured that in your work, and uh, we're delighted, and like you, I certainly hope that that deal to preserve two of those circles under that uh, site under construction now will happen, because it's so important for people to be able to wander over there look at the history of Miami exhibitions that'll be there and understand people who lived there once upon a time. Well, thank you, Paul. That means a lot to me. And I, I hope you're right. I mean, I, I think we all have our fingers crossed that this will work. Um, we haven't been very good at historical preservation for the ancient world. And this is a good attempt. We'll see what happens. And Paul, you touch on some of these sites on your history tours mm -hmm. from uh, History Miami. I do, Joe. My first tours ever going back more than 30 years are right there at the mouth of the river. Mm -hmm. And it's still my favorite tour of the many tours I do. There's more history, archaeology, and architecture in downtown Miami beginning with archaeology than anywhere else I can think of in southeast Florida. Let me ask if either of you quickly, I have a tweet, worried about unmonitored from Tara Beach, oh, I just lost it, one second. Worried about unmonitored beach sites mounds in Fort Lauderdale too often disturbed during hurricane aftermath activities? Well, that's way beyond my ken, uh, okay. Bonnie, although <laughs> I am conversing with Fort Lauderdale. Just okay. uh, Andrew, being a native of Broward, might have a better take on that than I. Yeah, throw me under the bus. That was great. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think I'm always, on one hand, I'm always worried. The are West Broward, not so much on the beach. That's yeah, what I, I find know. fascinating. Yeah, okay. I mean, I'm always worried about environmental destruction of ancient sites. Um, but I guess I'm less worried about um, what the winds and the waters do than I am about what human destruction does. Right, which is what she's saying um, is disturbed in the uh, aftermath. Well, it's, yeah, really been a the activities. it's really been a fascinating hour. It really has. Andrew and thank Frank. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Dr. Thank Paul you. George. Yeah. We'll talk to you tomorrow nice also. Talk to you, Paul. Looking forward to it very much. Thanks yeah. a million. Andrew Frank is the Alan Morris Associate Professor of History at Florida State University, an award-winning author and editor, and he's the special, specialist in the history of the Seminoles and other Indians of Florida. His latest book is Before the Pioneers, Indians, Settlers, Slaves, and the Founding of Miami. Thank you so much, Professor Frank. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was really wonderful. I really enjoyed it. Great. 
And thank you for listening. Our program was produced by Richard Ive. Technical direction from online content producer Jason Zabka. Polly Landis is associate producer. And today, thanks to Taylor Cox of WFSU Tallahassee. And Florida history buffs might enjoy listening to this program again. It's easy to download a free archive from our website. That's WLRN.org. Joe, I can't believe this. Are you going to promo tomorrow's show? Yes. And this is the last time? Tomorrow, Bonnie and I return for our final edition of Topical Currents. After more than 18 years on the air, we are retiring Topical Currents. And a new program begins next Monday, October 2nd. We have a big program planned tomorrow to reminisce a little bit. We do. We do. It's hard. This is your last promo for the next show, huh? Yes, it is. (sighs) It'll be a retrospective and visit with some of our favorite guests, and we'll also talk to some of our longtime listeners. If you'd like to phone in, we'll be pleased to hear from you. Joseph Cooper and Bonnie Berman, thanks for listening. Stay tuned for Here and Now, next from NPR News.